pain or fear like I, I, our dog Hazel can put on quite a show every time Kristen leaves the house, literally. It's like the world's coming to an end. And every, everybody, every animal um, seems to tear up, like tears to coat their eyes, keep them moist, or to protect their eyes from foreign objects. But humans are the only animals that seem to weep in response to their feelings, And scientists who study it can't actually say why this happens. We can say, like, what makes us cry? But what's the purpose of crying? That's another question. And it's just, it's such an odd thing that we all do. We leak from our eyes and make, like, involuntary noises that are, frankly, not super attractive sometimes, (laughs) right? So, So what is crying for? And this is a complicated question, right, for us especially because we cry for some really strange reasons. Like um, some people laugh so hard they cry. Does this happen to anybody? I do this all the time. Like, um, or, or some people cry when they get angry. Anybody do that? Yeah. Um, often just when in public speaking, like in front of a group, people will start crying and be like, I, I have no idea why I'm crying right now. Sometimes our crying sounds like laughter. Sometimes our laughter sounds like crying, and often people who are laughing and crying make the same face. Sometimes tears are a roadmap to, like, unconscious pain or disturbance. One of my favorite authors in a book, Leaving Church, Barbara Brown Taylor, tells about when she was pastoring this small country church. She had been doing this for a long time. She would stand at the back and shake hands on the way out. And one Sunday, her eyes started watering in its rural Georgia. She thought it was just allergies. But then it happened the next week and the next and the next. And she started to wonder if something deeper might be happening. And what she figured out through some like counseling and, and spiritual direction was she didn't want to be a pastor anymore. And her body knew before she did and was already grieving that loss. And the weird part is, as soon as she realized this, the, the crying stopped. Isn't that weird? Tears can be a roadmap to like some deep unconscious tension in our soul. Maybe that's why researchers tell us that we're actually quite bad at telling if somebody is faking a cry. We're a little better at laughter, like at least in part because laughter is contagious, right? Humans will laugh just because someone around them is laughing. I'm constantly laughing at kids, my things my kids are laughing at, and I'm oblivious. I'm just kind of laughing along. I don't understand. Sometimes I can't hear it. But weeping is not like that. Weeping isn't contagious. We don't just automatically cry because someone else is. In fact, studies show we have this massive bias toward assuming that if someone is crying, they're probably faking it. Isn't that funny? Like, that's, that's what we, we think. Crying's terribly confusing for us, even though we've all been crying, like, since the day we were born. Probably the first sound you ever made was crying. In fact, most newborn babies are, like, very sophisticated criers. Our moms know this. There's a cry that means I'm hungry, that means I'm tired, a cry that means pick me up, a one that, that means put me down. There's even a cry that means something like I just need somebody to love me, right? I still do this one all the time. <laughs> Children cry for like a performative effect, right? They, they cry uh, in, in a, to get, to have some kind of reactions, just like on The Bachelor or other reality TV shows. They don't have the language yet to name what's going on, so they just cry. Adults are different. We like to laugh together, but we prefer to cry alone. 
In fact, humans are also the only animal that seems to have the ability to weep almost silently all by ourselves. It's actually the only part of crying that seems to have some evolutionary benefit, like silent weeping is safer than a loud cry that could attract predators. Darwin actually said that emotional tears serve no function. He called, he called them purposeless. It's weird. After all this time and research, nobody can really say what crying is for, and yet almost everybody does it, usually in connection with some kind of emotional intensity. Crying's connected to emotional intensity, good or, or bad. There's a researcher that I studied this week. I went way down the rabbit hole with this guy from the Netherlands named Ad Vingerhoots, which is a great name. And um, he's the world's leading expert on crying. He wrote a book called Why Only Humans Weep. It's a real tearjerker. <laughs> yeah, you got it. I was wondering if you'd get that stupid joke. <laughs> but he was looking at what causes people to cry and how it changes over a lifetime. It's fascinating. He says, physical pain is a big reason we cry when we're young, if you, wanna, if you can throw that slide up there. Um, but, the, but it sort of um, goes away as we get older. I guess the chart's not there. Um, but um, then there's something like empathy or sentimentality. It, it doesn't get us crying as children, but as we become adults, it really does. It's, a, it's way up there for adults. But what I find most telling is that the number one and number two factors that induce um, weeping in humans, they stay the same over the course of a human life. You can see them both. There they are at the, at the top. Number two is a sense of powerlessness. And number one is loss or separation. Those things always make us weep, no matter our stage of life. A couple of weeks ago, we, we did this thing where we had everybody write down um, some time when they um, have been made to feel like an outsider. If you haven't read those, they're on the, on the door in the atrium. You should read through them. They're heartbreaking. Let me just read a few of these. The, the one that really stuck out to me, it's as good as Jesus wept, only two words. It says, my family. Can you imagine? My family makes me feel like an outsider. Um, when I was really depressed, I felt like an outsider to everything and everyone, even my own family, another one with family, my homelessness, my alcoholism, um, my husband's neglect, oh. I, my, my family, um, church, my sister's closeness. Um, one says, being told by my, the church I grew up in, I couldn't participate in communion for being a lesbian and having a girlfriend. Because of my family growing up, because of the abuse I endured there, I've never felt like enough. That's rough, right? You can, kinda, you can sense that. This is what makes us weep. A sense of loss or, or a sense of kind of distance or separation. And these are the things that make us feel powerless, which also makes us weep. And so it kind of makes sense that these are the things we try to avoid. And we'll do some terrible things as human beings to avoid feeling loss or separation or, or powerless, right? It's why, for instance, so many people avoid paying attention to things like systemic injustice. Those things 
um, we, we feel powerless to change the big problems, right? But there's this emotional intensity to them. They make us cry, so we just try to avoid them. And so it's interesting to me that when we find Jesus weeping in the scriptures, it's in response to really these same things, this sense of powerlessness and this sense of loss and separation. In the Gospel of John, it's weird. Jesus doesn't do miracles. He calls them signs, and there are seven of them. Turning water into wine uh, is the first one. Healing the official son, uh, healing a lame man, feeding 5,000, walking on water and calming the storm, healing the man born blind. And then the seventh sign is today's passage, raising Lazarus from the dead. And of course, in the scriptures, the number seven never just means seven. It Seven symbolizes creation, right? Which took seven days to complete. That's what's going on in John. And part of how we know this is that the whole gospel of John begins with the words, in the beginning, just like Genesis. So, so Jesus' signs in John are symbolically connected to our creation story. And they're, they're kind of progressive. They grow in intensity. Like the very first sign, Jesus just keeping everybody's drink full at a wedding. By the seventh sign, he's literally raising somebody from the dead. And that there are seven of them signals that this, it, we're talking about the creation story, that, that this story um, that was um, supposed to be headed toward shalom, toward peace, everything in its rightful place, doing what it's intended to do. This big story has gone off the rails, and human life is being ruled and distorted by a power called death. Not just like death, what happens to everyone in the end, but death as a power we experience in the midst of life. The way that everything good seems fleeting and passing, our sense of loss and separation in the face of death and our powerlessness to avoid it. Death makes us crazy. Death is a power, it has a hold on the human imagination. And to avoid it, we'll do all kinds of crazy and unhelpful things. Everything from just like using violence to secure um, our future to exploiting the poor to in, ensure our, our security through wealth or just numbing out, right, to when we can't avoid death. There's this anxiety that comes with death as a power. It's, it's even in the scriptures. Um, uh, Isaiah, I think it is, says, in the midst of life we are in death. Of whom shall we seek um, help but you, O Lord? So the fear of death looms over life, exercising a power over creation. And part of the Christian story is that death is exercising a power it was never intended to have. So Jesus' signs here, they're, they're meant to give us a glimpse of a world where death doesn't have the final word, right? So the blind can see, the lame can walk. Even death isn't the end of the, the story. That's the world God imagines for us. If we didn't have this kind of creation level problem going on with the power of death that makes us do crazy things. It shapes our culture deeply, our, our greatest hopes and worst fears and, and our actions. And so maybe it's not such a, a big surprise that the culmination of the seven signs in John's gospel involves this confrontation with death. 
The problem, of course, is nobody understands the signs, right? Not Mary or Martha, or not the disciples or the Pharisees or the Jewish people here in, in the crowd. Um, Jesus, if you remember in the story, Jesus had just healed the man born blind. Remember that story? And there's a big ruckus they call his parents in and him in. And, and, and he was in Jerusalem at the time for Hanukkah, actually. He's teaching at the temples temple, and the, the Pharisees come to him, and they're like, tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? And Jesus basically says, I've been doing all these signs, man. Like, you only see what you want to see, and what you can't see is that I and the Father are one. That's what he says, which is blasphemy. It's, you're not allowed to say that. So they tried to kill him, and he had to go into hiding. He ran off down toward Jericho into the wilderness, same place John the Baptist did his ministry of baptizing, same place Jesus had gone for 40 days in the wilderness for his testing. So he fled there with the 12. And then we're told while he was there, he gets this message from his friends Mary and Martha, who lived in Bethany, like right on the outskirts of Jerusalem, that said, Lazarus, one of his buddies, was on the verge of death. Come quickly, they said. But then we're told that when Jesus heard this, um, it says, he stayed where he was two more days. And the way John tells the story, you're like, this is kind of weird. Like, he makes it obvious that it's weird. Jesus didn't go to Lazarus right away. He didn't, like, prepare to leave or tell his guys to get ready or pack. He didn't send a, a text saying, um, O-M-W, on my way. Right? That's what it says? That's what it means? He just stayed in the wilderness while Lazarus died. And so there's kind of this question in the text, why these two extra days. You have to remember why he's there in the first place. He's, he's been escalating this conflict with the religious leaders, and they're trying to, to kill him. Lazarus lives in Bethany, right next to where they all live. If he goes back there, he could be arrested and, and killed. And so he's run to the wilderness, um, probably to pray for direction. I mean, that's why he was always going into the wilderness. And while he was praying, God seems to have revealed to him Lazarus was already dead because when he comes back, he knows. And Jesus also knew that all he did last time was heal the man born blind, and they tried to kill him for that. If he raises this guy from the dead, he's toast. And so he took a beat two days to pray about it. And evidently, he came to believe that God actually was leading him back to Jerusalem to heal Lazarus. And to confront the powers who were leading his people and who had shaped their entire world around the fear of death. And so he told his guys, we're going. And Thomas, it's funny, Thomas says what everybody's thinking. He goes, let us go too so that we may die with him. Like he, Thomas tells us the stakes. You gotta love Thomas. Some interpreters try to argue that, that he waited two days so Lazarus would die so that then he could heal him, which seems odd to me. Like, for one thing, that's just cruel. But for another thing, it actually doesn't make sense with the timeline. By the time Jesus arrived in Bethany, which is about a day's walk, um, it says Lazarus had been dead for four days. Jesus had only waited two days. So if, if you think about the geography and how much time it takes to, to move around in the ancient world, Lazarus was probably already dead by the time Jesus even learned that he was sick. And so you have to, you have to make sense then of why, why does John make a big deal out of the, 
two days, and then the four days dead, it says. He was four days dead. The reason, I think, is there was this common Jewish belief at the time that the soul of a dead person would hang around for three days, hoping to re-enter the body. And so four days kind of is a literary device. It signals to the reader, this guy is really dead, like not mostly dead. (laughs) Right? Lazarus is all the way dead. Shalom has been disrupted, and it, this is irreversible in their world. But remember, in all four Gospels, anytime Jesus faces a disruption in Shalom, he moves against it. And so here, when faced with the ultimate disruption of Shalom, the question is, what's he going to do? Can he do anything? Martha comes out to meet him before he gets in. Even in the town, she starts in on him. She's scolding him. You should have been here. And Jesus says, your brother will be raised up. And Martha says, I know he'll be resurrected at the end of time. She's referring to the kind of the Jewish and Christian belief um, that God will raise those, resurrect those who die to new life in a renewed creation. It's called the general resurrection of the dead. It's a, it's a Christian and Jewish doctrine. Martha's like, I know that's where this is all headed, but that's no consolation to me now. And in the face of her tears, Jesus asks Martha to imagine that that this future that she believes in, the general resurrection of the dead, um, might be part of this seventh sign. And, And what he says is kind of stunning. He says... You don't have to wait for the end. He says, and then he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even though he or she dies, yet they will live. Then the other sister, Mary, shows up. She's even more ticked, if this is possible. Master, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. She's going, this is your fault. And when Jesus saw her sobbing and the Jews with her sobbing, a deep anger welled up within him. It's weird. He said, where did you put him? And he said, Master, come and see. And this is the, the climax of the story. And And um, the shortest verse in the Bible, just two words, but also the pinnacle of the seven signs, it says, Jesus wept. We don't really know why humans weep, like what crying's ultimate purpose is, but we know what causes us to weep. It's emotional intensity brought on by loss or separation or a sense of powerlessness. So Jesus wept. Why does he weep? Well, the people, or the Jews, depending on our translation, who saw all of this go down, they, they have an interpretation. They say, well, he was sad at the loss of his friend. But you have to remember, in, in the Gospels, when they mention the people or the Jews, they are rarely reliable narrators. Like, they are there to give the obvious and wrong answer, right? That's their purpose. And that's how it's written here. But there's this detail. We're told before he weeps, Jesus got angry. And the verbs are emphatic, like ticked. He's furious. He's losing it. Overwhelmed with this intensity. But it's not sadness. It's anger. 
anguish, right? Frustration. And so we're left to wonder, why? What's he mad? Is it Mary and Martha? Their reproach, their demands? Is it the crowd, half of whom have just sentimentalized this, half of whom think he's a nutter who can't do anything about this? And here's what I think. It's not really me. I mean, this is, good. This is scholars. But I think Jesus wept in grief and anger at the power of death itself and the human powerlessness in, in the face of it. He's lived under the threat of death for a while now. And his whole life, he's watched the fear of death turn people against each other. He narrowly escaped death just like a few days before this. Everywhere he goes, death seems to be just sort of lurking in the shadows. And now his buddy, Lazarus, is dead. And Mary and Martha, at least half the crowd, think he's to blame. But they can't see the signs, or at least they can't interpret them. They don't know the story that began in the beginning has reached like its, its decisive chapter. Jesus is at the crux move, the, the leap, leap of faith. You see, Jesus actually knew that he could raise Lazarus from the dead. I mean, he tells like three people in the story as much here. At this point in his ministry, he knew he had a power over a death. But then there's death, the power, not just the event. Death as a power had hijacked all of creation and even these people and was killing things that God meant to live. Things like community and friendship. Things like faith and hope and love. And there didn't seem to be anything Jesus could do about that. I think Jesus' anger here is toward death itself and, and sort of the inevitability of it and, and how it was tearing humanity apart and, and how even with all of his own power, he still felt powerless against it. And he knew he could raise Lazarus from the dead, but, but he also knew that they would eventually kill him for it which they did. You know, a death for a death, an eye for an eye. This seems to be all humanity is really capable of. I see Jesus overwhelmed with anger and frustration to the point of weeping because he can see what he's up against here, the power of death, and he has a choice to make. Who's going to get to live here? Is it Jesus or is it Lazarus? Because it's probably not going to be both. Those are the stakes. And he knows it, and nobody else does, and so there's that added layer of separation. And ultimately, he will give his life for Lazarus, but, but they will come for him, right? It won't be enough. Death comes for him next, and he, he knows this, and Mary and Martha seem oblivious. I mean, think about it. He's sitting, he will be in Bethany on, on the high priest's doorstep, just a couple of miles away, if he raises this guy, every, everybody in Jerusalem will, will know, and there will be a powerful reaction. In fact, in, in the span of just a few days, think about this. He goes from all the Jews, it says in the story, wanting to kill him for claiming to be God, to all of them welcoming Jesus into town and, as a king on Palm, like our Palm Sunday, right? First they try to kill him, then they're greeting him as a, a king. You know what happens in between those two scenes? The seventh sign. 
raising of Lazarus. They're going to start to believe he's Messiah. But only Jesus seemed to understand he was trading his own life. And so it's, it's, it's actually kind of insensitive. They just lead this guy right up to the tomb where he's just overwhelmed and, and starts to weep. This intensity and anguish, because he knows where this is all headed. Like he knows death is the enemy that's making humanity crazy. And now it has a hold of his friend Lazarus, and all he can do is trade his own life to get him back. And so I think he weeps, in part because nobody else can see what's happening. There's this isolation and separation from his friends. But mostly he weeps in just anguish and grief at the power of death. Because even though he can exercise power over one man's death, death as a power that controls the world, it, it will come looking for him next and everybody. And in the case of him, like who will lay down their life for him when it comes looking for him? Which, by the way, is the question... He was always asking his guys who will lay down their life, who will take up their cross, follow me. I just imagine him standing there looking at the tomb, just thinking, if I pull Lazarus out of this tomb, man, they'll just kill me. They'll throw me in there instead. The power of death will just keep marching on. Like, what can I do about this? How will this ever stop? Like, Father, how will it end? get this glimpse of the humanity of Christ. And you see, he did not yet know. There's no way he could have known until after his resurrection that God would overcome death as a power through the faithfulness of Christ, his son, who agreed to trade his own life for a friend. Jesus couldn't have known that God would raise him from the dead. I mean, he believed, but he couldn't have known God would raise him before the resurrection. If he knew there would be no anguish, you know, no, no intensity, no tears. He'll cry later in the garden. Jesus had to die the way all of us die, trusting, faithing that somehow God will sort out death in the end. But here standing in front of the tomb, all, all he knows is that healing Lazarus will be the death of him. And he loved Lazarus, so he's willing to trade his life for a friend. And in so doing, he showed us that, that really, this is all any of us can do. If we want to live our lives free of the power of death over the human imagination, this is how we pour out our lives for one another. This is the story we tell as Christians. This is what makes all the difference for us. This is the one we follow, the one standing in front of a tomb, weeping at the power of death. Eventually, they did kill Jesus, but God raised him to new life and then unleashed the power of the Spirit into the world. And through that Holy Spirit, Christ lives on in all of us, wherever two or three are gathered in my name. There I am, he said. Even here in the midst of the threat of death, he, he says, I am with you. I will not let you go down to the grave so quickly, so, so easily. And then he says, anyone who wishes to live in my name, you must learn how to lay down your lives 
for each other. And if we do, we'll see that there's just so much more to the human spirit. You know, it's placed there by God for a reason. And it's fueled by resurrection and ascension. And it enables us to, to band together in the face of the threat of death and say to one another, I won't let you go so easily into death and destruction and death and all its friends, this one theologian says. I'll be with you and I'll do everything in my power to keep air in your lungs and like blood pumping through your veins and keep life flowing into you and through you as you pour it out for others out into the world. We have this power, right? It's a gift from God through Christ who literally gave his own final breath to convince his friends um, of just how amazing and dynamic and powerful and miraculous and life-giving a simple human community can be when they just stop being afraid of death as a power and then start chasing life together. This is why for most of human history, people forget about this because the church really gets kind of slammed these days, but for most of human history, Christians were the only ones doing things like building hospitals, you know, and funding scientific research, starting schools, training doctors and nurses, finding cures for diseases, diseases, giving away medicine for free, like chasing like workers' rights and, and, and fairness and, and justice. Jesus brought Lazarus back to life. Christians have found a lot of ways to bring people back to life in his name. And this is why. Because Jesus laid his life down for a friend. And so we're meant to do the same. Not in like grand gestures. Like you don't have to fall on a hand grenade here, literally. It's the boring, mundane stuff. The everyday actions, right? Of laying down our lives for the people you know, or you could say the annoying people nearest to us, right? Our, our spouse, our bosses, our kids, our neighbors. You know, people who don't always deserve it. Can we live our lives in such a way that we're not trying to preserve ourselves and keep from dying, but to spend our lives, pour them out for others? Because what Jesus says is, this is how the kingdom comes. There is no other way it comes. And it's not easy. I mean, we can't forget Jesus wept. Nobody gets through life without weeping. Nobody um, finds their way to the kingdom of God without facing death and loss and separation and powerlessness. But what this story does is it it begins here as we make the turn toward Easter. It begins to point us in the direction of starting to believe that maybe, like just maybe, death is not the end of the story. It's funny. Um, when Jesus says, take the stone away, Martha's like, 
trying to warn Jesus. He's been dead for days. She said, it's going to smell really bad. I love the King James Version of this. Martha, it has Martha saying, Lord, by this time he stinketh, which is great. <laughs> I, have, I have taught this to my family. We say this about all manner of things in our house. He stinketh. This happens a lot. Um, Jesus has stopped crying now. He's gathered up his courage. His confidence is back, it feels like, in the text. In my mind, I even, I, like I have him kind of smiling at Martha. And then, and this is what happens. Let me read. Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? And then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes. He, he's mentioning seeing and eyes. Did you catch that? I told you you would see. And then he lifts up his own eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. So God is a God who weeps. God is a God who hears the cry, the cries, why we cry, the weeping. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. And this is what he says still to us. Take off the grave clothes, man. Be set free to live. Let's pray. Lord, um, we just confess that we live here still in the world where there is still a lot of death um, everywhere we turn, not just like death at the end, but death as a power stealing away our life. And best we can as a community, we just say that we've had enough of the power of death over us and over our world. And we ask you, God, to send the spirit of your son into this world, into our hearts, our bodies. Draw us close to you and then to each other and give us the courage to believe that we're not alone in our weeping, that you are a God who weeps with us. And some of us need to know this. And that you could help us maybe to believe Jesus' words. You don't have to wait for the end for resurrection to happen, that it follows every little death. And to say somehow to one another, I will not let you go so quickly, so easily. However I can, I'll lay down my life for you so that you can live. For this is how the kingdom comes. Give us the courage to chase this as 
our reality as what's, um, what's really real. Amen. We stand, please. And we're going to receive communion now. The way we do it at Redemption is just the ushers release us um, row by row, and you come forward and, and find somebody. There'll be a line of people here to receive communion from. They'll offer you a plate of bread and a cup. You take a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup and then receive it. And as you do, they'll say to you, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can respond just saying, I will remember, or however you feel comfortable responding. The reason we do this is that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took this one loaf of bread and a cup, just one of them, and he had all his guys share in in the same cup, in the same loaf. And he said, this cup is is like my blood, my my, um, life that's poured out for you. The, The bread is like my body. He said, whenever you gather from now on, eat this bread, drink this cup, take my body, my life into your life and be made out of the stuff I'm made out of and then become my hands and feet to the world. And he said, every time you gather, do this. And so this is why we receive communion. It's kind of weird, but it's, it's just what we do to remind ourselves that we're feasting on Christ and being made of what he's made out of. And it's also why we just we don't set any limitations. Anybody can come join us um, at the table. So I invite you to, to come now, but first to um, pray a blessing on it with me. Let's pray. Oh God, we do ask you to bless this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace and a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Will you come and live inside us, make us new from the inside out, and then send us out into the world to be salt and light, and let the world um, feast on us and taste and see your goodness, all to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?